0: This is Speaking of Shakespeare, conversations about things Shakespearean. I'm Thomas Dabbs, recording from Aoyama Gakuin University in central Tokyo. This conversation is with Aaron Pratt, who is Carl and Lily Forsheimer, curator of early books and manuscripts at the Harry Ransom Center, University of Texas, Austin. This talk is funded with institutional support from Aoyama Gakuin University and also with a generous grant, grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. Hi, Aaron. This is our first meeting ever. Yes.
1: And yes nice to meet you.
0: It's nice to meet you. It really is. I was speaking with Brett Greatly-Hirsch, mm-hmm. who totally. does uh, DRE, and, and I'm sure you're familiar with his work and during I think off camera he said you want to talk with Aaron Pratt I said okay and so I looked you up at the University of Texas and there you are working on all kinds of things that we are interested in in this program and that uh, from a a selfish standpoint I'm extremely interested in now you are at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas and You know, I want to know what that is. I do know what it is. But for our viewers, what the Ransom Center is and how it fits into the university, how it fits with you. You know, what's going on there?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, the Ransom Center is it's hard. It's sort of weird to explain. I mean, the short sort of like rubber, you know, back of the envelope sort of story about the Ransom Center, right, is Harry Hunt Ransom, who is sort of once an English professor, rises up to be like the chancellor of the the UT system. He has this idea in the mid 50s, and this is after the GI Bill and the rise of the American universities. And so he has this idea that Texas as a university system needs to be a real university, like real TM. And there's this sort of Texas, I mean, the way I always talk about this is that Texas has this anxiety about being the best. And it needs to be the best in two ways. It needs to be the best on its own terms, right? So it's Texas, come on, you know we do our own thing. (laughs) But it also has to, it also really wants to keep up with the Joneses of the, the coastal elites. And so it wants to have both the kind of credibility of like, we do our own thing, don't mess with Texas. Mm-hmm. And like, guess what, Ivy Leagues, like we're pretty cool on your terms too. And so mm-hmm. in the mid-50s, Ransom is thinking, like, I want to build this foundation, you know, I want our university to be one of the best. And in order to be one of the best. And this would be great if people still thought this. We need a really strong humanities research collection. Um, and so he has this crazy line, I think he writes, that he wants, you know, like he wants, oh, he has got something wacky. It's like, the I want to have the Bibliothèque Nationale for the only state in America that started off as its own nation, right? And so it's this very sort of bizarre kind of national, Texas nationalistic project. And at that time in the late 50s and the 60s and into the 70s, um, Texas was very rich. And so we had a lot of oil money. I mean, universities in general were spending lots of money building themselves, especially state universities that were trying to kind of rise after the war. And so Ransom just starts vacuuming up culture. Um, And I think that's the easiest way to describe it. What ends up happening is over time, the Ransom Center really distinguishes itself by collecting modern literary archives. And so, you know, nobody really gave two craps about the papers of like, you know, modern authors, like who cares about, well, I'm trying to think of a good example, but like, you know, like who cares about the papers of like D.H. Lawrence or somebody, or like who, you know, what, what is this stuff for? Like you have the published books, like maybe a manuscript is kind of collectible as a kind of souvenir, but like the whole archive, that was something that Ransom really started collecting in a serious way. And that, you know, after the money started to sort of ebb a little bit and the rare books, the stuff that really I'm responsible for started to sort of become less attainable, the Ransom Center had distinguished itself by being the place for modern literary archives. And so, you know, we had, I mean, not just literary, I mean, you know, recently there was an article about like a Steinbeck novel that he never published about a werewolf, which is kind of amazing, um, that we have the, the manuscript for. And so a lot of that stuff is stuff we were getting early on. Um, but then um, we really went whole hog on the kind of the archive stuff. but. As early as 1918, you know, decades before, um, decades before the Ransom Center started, UT started collecting rare books. Um, and the very first rare book collection, in fact, that UT bought was one that's very dear to my heart called the John Henry Wren Library. Um, it was purchased uh, uh, Wren, in 1918.
0: Wren as in uh, W-R-E-N-N. Totally. All right, like the yeah. bird, like the bird. Two Wren, yeah, exactly, two yeah, ends. Okay. The yeah. John Wren, okay.
2: So John Henry Wren, you know, was the Chicago, like all of these collectors who, bought the rare books are these robber barons, American robber baron types, right? Cause they've got all this industrial capital either directly from industry or on the banking that's coming out of industry. And so Ren's a Chicago banker who's making money off of all the industry in Chicago, builds this amazing book collection that's very weird, um, really strong and sort of late 16th century all the way into like Kelmscott's. So the stuff that he was collecting kind of during his life in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He dies through a complicated set of things this guy, George Littlefield, who's a big Texas benefactor, buys the collection for $225,000 and gives it to the university. Um, And this is in 1918. And so from that point forward, Texas is collecting kind of rare books and rare books that matter for them are rare books of English literature. And so this is kind of, I mean, it's kind of remarkable to think, like it's just so hard to imagine this in the budgetary and fiscal and university climates today, that in order to distinguish your university, you're buying a bunch of like Shakespeare's friends. Right. It's not even like it's just not, Ren's not a strong Shakespeare question. It's like Sidney, um, Spencer, like tons of Congreve. I mean, like the kind, you know, late, later stuff, Pope, Swift, that kind of stuff. And so in any event, Ransom Center's got all this stuff. Um, we have film archives, you know, we've got Robert De Niro's archives. We've got like one of the masks from uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre because we have some of Toby Hooper's archives. We've got the dresses from Gone with the Wind. Um, we have all kinds of stuff, but my corner of the world, is this sort of really early collecting that Texas did that was designed really to say, we can do the humanities. And a lot of what happens in humanities research is textual editing. And so we have all of the kind of fodder for that kind of hardcore early bibliographical work. And the UT, and this last thing I'll say on this, um, UT was also uh, right across the sort of quad from what now is the Ransom Center is the English department. Um, and, you know, William Todd, this great bibliographer, was across the street. And so UT for a while, not quite at the level of somewhere like UVA, but, you, you know, UT was a bibliographical powerhouse. And so the Ransom Center and its English department sort of worked in tandem as this sort of place that provided research opportunities for the kind of a hardcore work of English literary scholarship, which was textual editing in, in part.
0: Yeah, so that's actually separate from the Department of English proper, the you are the center the center is
2: completely separate completely
0: yeah. separate but you also do you teach in the english department or is that so a I separate
2: have, i have like a you know like a courtesy appointment in english and something I it's kind of nice right because before yeah. i took this job so i like did my phd at yale wrote some stuff about plays and then i was very very fortunate to get a tenure track job at a university called trinity university which yeah. is in san antonio um, oh in so, San Antonio okay. yeah, not, not Trinity College in okay. Connecticut uh, Yeah, okay. I'm I'm always, everybody gets them confused but it's kind yeah. of like a, Trinity University is kind of like a slack kind of deal like a liberal arts college yeah. except for the fact that it's um, it's sort of Texas friendly right and so it's like Parents from the Dallas and Houston suburbs can send their kids there, but not be as scared as they would if they sent them to like a Swarthmore or a Haverford or something, or Uh even like an Oberlin or something, Kenyon, something Uh like that. Yeah. And so I was there for a little bit. And then this Ransom Center job came up and I was like, I love books. I don't need to teach Hamlet for the rest of my life. And so I kind of jumped up up to the Ransom Center. So I do have a, I did manage, the reason I mentioned that is I managed to get a kind of courtesy appointment. So that like my name appears on the faculty website And I do have the ability, um, in addition to teaching like sessions of classes with faculty, which I do constantly as part of my curatorial work, I can also advise grad students. So I've been on a dissertation committee. Um, I can also teach directed study courses, kind of conference one-on-one courses. And I do a lot of those uh, or increasingly do more of those. And so that's kind of nice because I do have this kind of foot still in the world of teaching this literature. Um, But my sort of primary like 40 hour week kind of deal is hanging out with old books
0: and trying to talk to people about them. Okay, good. Well, I, I was going through some of your collections and I saw some things jumped out at, at me. There was uh, not having to do with Shakespeare. Uh, One of my favorites is Dylan Thomas and uh, I could name a few more here, but let's stay in the 16th century Ortelius. There are letters of Ortelius and Uh, and I don't know why. I think it just came up on your website. Yeah. There's far more there. But I was working with Ortelius's, uh edition recently, yeah. and so nice. yeah. uh, and we're getting to a point of scholarship. And I was talking with Heather Knight, who's the uh, senior archaeologist at the Museum of London Archaeology, yeah. Yeah. and she she and I were talking about how collaborative things have uh, become. And your uh, research to this point shows that how. Uh, There's a a kind of fluid movement Uh, you were talking about in the in the uh, days in the days of yore with Harry Ransom, you're a bibliographer or a scholar and uh, sort
2: of. Yeah, right. right. And
0: and we I've talked with several of our guests about this. Now there's much more of a fluid movement in between these two uh, in uh, not between these two things, but several things. There's a kind of movement. And it can be archaeology it can be physical space and structure it can be the book it can be print and it yeah. can be literature what we traditionally see is literature sure. uh, i think i think we we like keeping that in there because that's kind of what drives the engine the uh sure. the uh the, the fabulous literature of the pe- period and the writing of the period yeah but you move fluidly in uh in, in that space is there anything that you would say are the featured items in your collections uh, in early books,
2: I mean, you know, we have the ransom center. One of the things that also distinguishes it from a lot of special collections libraries is that we have a very prominent museum function and so we do have kind of permanent galleries or we have rather like dedicated gallery space on our first floor, and we're open free to the public and we have. At any given time, we sort of usually have I mean, now it's kind of complicated, but normally we have like a sort of temp, a kind of thematic exhibit that runs. There are a couple of those a year. So, like most recently, we had up Gabriel Garcia Marquez's archive. Mm. Um, you know, other ones have been on like Gone with the Wind. We've done vaudeville, et cetera, et cetera. And then we have this other little gallery space called Stories to Tell, which has these mm. rotating kind of smaller modules. I usually have something up in there, but we do have two items that are two slash three items that are always on display at the Ransom Center, one of which is the Gutenberg Bible or a Gutenberg Bible. And we have one of 20 complete copies that have survived sort of intact through that whole period. There's a 21st that like has had some leaves swapped out and there's another one where leaves were stolen out of it to get us up to like 22 or so. So we have that in in the ransom center when the University of Texas bought that in 78, it was the most expensive copy that ever sold it was the last complete copy that ever sold. And so that sucker um, is in our lobby in this sort of dedicated shrine. And so when people come into the Ransom Center, they see like the Gutenberg shrine and it's like this dedicated structure that's kind of curved. I mean, it's got, you've got to call it a shrine. I mean, it used to be, you know, like when we would turn the pages, like armed guards would come, it was a whole deal. Um, We have that. We also have the earliest surviving photograph taken. It's like a kind of a, you have to kind of slice it, but it's called the Niepce heliograph and it is the earliest surviving you know, photographic image. So we have that, and it's on a plate. And then we also have a Frida Kahlo self-portrait that is usually on display, but as you might imagine, paintings kind of have to rotate huh. around. And we get tons of, because it's one of the famous Frida Kahlo portraits, it gets loaned out quite a bit. So you know, really in terms of the early stuff, that Gutenberg Bible is like the bread and butter because that thing is constantly in front of the public. People sort of, even when they don't know what it is, they know that it's a thing that you should care about because it's the Gutenberg Bible, whatever that might mean. We have that, and that's marquee stuff. You know, we have three first folios. We have, you know, Copernicus on the revolution. You know, we've got tons of stuff because we were vacuuming up everything. So like one of the things that actually drives a lot of our sort of specialized academic research is we have an incredible collection of what used to be called a recusant collection, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's books by and for English Catholics. And mm-hmm. we have one of the strongest collections, especially of the devotional stuff. So, you know, most people, like a lot of people have copies of the polemical literature and we've got plenty of that. But mm-hmm. one of the things we're incredibly strong on are like the, you know, the bread and butter devotional manuals, how to die well, but the Catholic versions, right? The ones that were printed in Saint-Omer or Douai.
0: Okay, so we're, we're talking uh, here, we're, we're 16th century. We're uh, recusant 16, 17th, here, Yeah. Yeah, and the recusant period being the Uh, response to the elizabethan settlement that came in uh, when uh, elizabeth ascended and so during that period a a lot of stuff i don't want to say tons but a lot of uh, a lot of protestant or what would be not roman uh, uh, literature was printed and we have some of it uh, at our university we have uh, and uh, it's all around the world but the recusant the counter yes um i, I guess counter reformation i mean that, that's a term yeah. people
2: still sort of use but yeah. like like squinting a little bit you know
0: yeah so this is come uh, the the movement to push back uh, a lot, actually, um, uh, with yes. people who were still faithful to Rome yes. it, within England, and also, yes. of course, on the continent. And that's the collection. That's the feature of the c- collection is the recusant literature. That, that particular, yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of funny, like, we're not really like a strong house with Protestant Reformation stuff. I mean, we've got, you know, some, we've got good Bibles, you've got good things. But really, I would say, like, the the real kind of unique collection of religious material, anyway, at the Ransom Center is this Counter-Reformation material, um, this Recusant material. And we even, there are manuscripts associated with that collection as well. Um, you know, there's, it's a really rich collection. Um, and one of the, I would say like, of, you know, the work that I've done to sort of re- make this collection kind of newly visible to sort of scholars of kind of current generations, you know, a lot of that work, the people really respond to that particular collection because their minds are kind of blown by the fact that we've got, you know, like a lot of, there's not a lot of our stuff in early English books online, um, this online database of facsimiles of early printed English books. But the stuff that we do have online, a lot of that is recusant collection material because we have the only copies. Um, so that's a, that's a like, kind of collection that's like not, like the public doesn't think about that collection very much. Although I did a, a small gallery show on um, dying well in early modern England. Um, and that had some Catholic material in it, but that collection is really nice. But you know, we've got Shakespeare out the wazoo. We've got lots of, we have a decent number of early quartos for not the Folger or not the Huntington or the UK library. So we're pretty strong there. The drama is incredibly strong, but you know- Shakespearean
0: not, drama or, or all across the board.
2: I would say, I mean, I would say like, if you wanna, you know, Carl Forsheimer um, was, um, sort of stocks guy um, on the back of Standard Oil. He makes all his money in oil oil money, but in the in the sort of banking and trading side. Um, well, he's the CEO of Standard Oil for a while, I think. If, I, I'm probably going to get that wrong because I always miss, mistake the, the biography of my benefactor. But, you know, he collects a lot of things. His Gutenberg Bible is the one that we have. But the Ransom Center requires his Renaissance Library in 1986. And it's actually a late acquisition for this kind of caliber for yeah. early books. But we buy this collection and he's got, like really, really good stuff. I mean, like early interludes. So if you want to go back in the drama, like the kind of early Protestant morality stuff. So like he's got, you know, lusty Juventus copies. He's got Gammergarten's Needle. He's got a lot of these really nice, very early plays. And so the mid to the drab age kind of quote unquote stuff. Um, And then we're incredibly, incredibly strong in Forsheimer, but also in Ren and a couple other collections on sort of late Elizabethan, Jacobean, and then Caroline, like every collector who even had five books, who was an English book collector, like probably had some Caroline drama. And we often have, you know, four (laughs) copies of us of a given edition. And so like, I've been doing a bunch of work, I'm giving a talk tomorrow on um, to a group of donors for the Bibliographical Site of America, and I'm going to be talking about um, Christopher Marlowe's Jew of Malta, um, not nothing about the play itself because I don't. That's, I'm not very good at close reading, but I do know about the books. Um, and we have four copies of the Jew of Malta, the 1633 first edition. You know, we've got okay. um, Brett Greatley Hirsch. You know, he came here to study Shirley's Hyde Park because we have like mm-hmm. six copies of Hyde Park. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's a. Th- you know, these are both Caroline playbooks. I mean, one's an Elizabethan play, one's a Caroline play, but both of them are um, Caroline playbooks, and we've got tons and tons of of those.
0: Okay, so Um, that's where you are. All right. Well, what I want to do, I'm going to be careful to to say to uh, my benefactors, or at least my audience, uh, we're largely Japanese over here, that sometimes... And this is the fault of the history of the profession. Sometimes sure. we have had, we have over divided things, and I just yes. talked about that, but I'm going to keep talking about it. Yeah, please. Just like we divide bibliography from criticism and other types sure. of uh, scholarship or whatever, uh, we tend to divide religion and literature. Uh, there's the religion people. There's the religion the literature people, and they're the archaeologists. They're the historians, and they're the you know. So we're yep. in the departmentalized. And I want to make a kind of uh, a, a statement. It's not that bold. Do it. You, Do it. I don't. I think that Bible and Shakespeare. You can just go in between and talk Bible and Shakespeare uh, totally. e- easily, facilely. Sure. Because I, I don't know if there could be a Shakespeare, uh, a Shakespeare without a Bible, and uh, I don't think it works the other way around. A different. The, uh, a different
2: Shakespeare. That's for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and so the, this age, you can't separate the uh, the Reformation the recusant period, any of that from the drama of the period. I mean, it would be like trying sure. to separate uh, rock and roll from, I don't know, uh, going to the moon back in the 60s. Sure. You know, sure. it, it sure. all happened together. It's all part of the period. And so uh, what I want to do is go then, yeah, uh, It's and as a, by way of a, a sort of apology, kind of stay on the Bible a bit. Sure. We're digitizing sure. one of our Bibles, several of our Bibles. In fact, we have already digitized one of them to share on the Folgers platform, because we don't really have that, the, the, the type of uh, resources to build sure. these uh, viewing platforms in the uh, uh, IIIF compliant, yeah. you know, right. the uh, super duper thing that the Folgers set up. So we just put one of our Incunabula Bibles. Oh, nice. Up, and, you know, it's small, it's a lemonade stand compared to these uh, hey, large that's uh, cool, though. Uh, collections that you have and that the Folger has. But we're acquiring some more, and uh, we're cool. going to have yeah. those. And we're friends with the Ko University folks mm-hmm. who have their Gutenberg, which is a yeah, beautiful, right. a beautiful. Co- I'm sure you're probably familiar with it. I am, yeah, of and course. They, and of they've course. digitized that and uh, and they've done it extraordinarily well. They're close by to to us, so I'm in this world of Bible and digitizing yeah. Bibles and curating these types of books. Sure. Uh, I'm uh, kind of rotating in this world now, and. We're going to move towards Bible and Shakespeare at some point. Hmm. There is the, is it Beam? Do you, the Beam Project? Beam, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, it's the
2: best way. Yeah, I came up, you know. Yeah. And the Bibles
0: would, of early modern England. Uh, and this has to do with the digital part of it. Now, where is that at? At at what point are you doing it or is yeah. it continuing? That's sort beam of thing. Is,
2: Well, Beam is this like pipe dream that I've had for a long time because a long time ago, well, now a long, it feels like a long time ago, um, there was a, Book? what the? Heck? I don't even remember what the book is, what the article's in. Oh, the King James Bible anniversaries, right? So there were tons of publishing yeah, around the, the 2011 anniversary of the King James Bible. And um, there was a book, The King James Bible After 400 Years, that um, I think this I feel so bad I don't remember my own biography anymore. But I think Hannibal, I think, was one of the, surely
0: Hannibal was one of the editors of it.
2: And this um, is Hannibal,
0: know, Hannibal Hamlin, Hannibal who, Hamlin. Uh, at uh, OSU at Ohio State University, who r- wrote kind of the yeah. book, uh, the, Bible and and just, yeah, uh, sure. the Bible and Shakespeare, let's just the Bible and Shakespeare. So I should have brought him up right off the bat, because that's the connection. Most recently, people, of course, need sure. the connection, connection all the way through. But uh, and he was uh, and you were at Ohio State University for your that's undergraduate. Right. And so I've got the
2: shirt. I've got my Ohio State shirt. Yeah, on. Yeah, OSU. And I've got to keep it.
0: Yeah. And a football fan. I don't know. You may be torn. Not now. really. But, you know, okay. when you <laughs> grew
2: up in Columbus, the football culture is very saturating. And so you either Love it or you don't don't love it. Yeah, um, and, and
0: you went to Texas, which is a very non-football state. Yeah, right? they don't like football. They Texas don't like football at all, at all they, in Texas. They, right? they have no interest. In uh, and uh, for our international viewers, that's American football we're talking about, which it, yes. and in Ohio and in Texas is a it's very serious. big deal. But the uh, beam project. Uh, yeah, let's get back to beam. And, yeah,
2: so Hannibal Hamlin and his colleague, Ohio State colleague um, Norman Jones, um, are putting together this book, um, you know, called the. King James Bible after 400 years. I'm looking at my CV. um, Literary, linguistic, and cultural influences. And John King, um, a scholar of the Reformation who we both know um, or knew, um, he was asked to write an article on sort of the materiality of the English Bible, right? So he's a, you know, John King was a a print historian, what history of the book and religion guy, Reformation guy. And he was asked to write this sort of sweeping thing about like, Printed Bibles, like the materiality of them, for this book, um, kind of leading up to the King James Bible. So, like, how did, like, how did the printed Bible exist before the King James Bible? So you can kind of contextualize this, like, famous 1611 publication. And John asked me, as like a lowly master student, to kind of throw in and co-author this with him. And it was a it was a credible testament to his generosity, I think, of sort of you know building building the career, helping build the career of a young scholar like me. Um, But one of the reasons he asked me to do it is because like I like hardcore nuts and bolts bibliography Mm -hmm. Um, and so we wrote this article that was trying to sort of in like you know as many words as one has in like a anthology chapter like you know I don't know how how long it's not very long you know to smash in the entire printed history of the English Bible from the Tyndale New Testament of 1525 or 1526 um, through King James Bible and so we had to come up with sort of trends right and so we had to kind of come up with buckets and ways to categorize this and scholars have always, um, for kind of understandable reasons, tended to focus on translation as the way that one understands the Bible. Like there was this translation, there was this translation, and there was that translation, mm-hmm. and this translation built on that one, et cetera. And so you kind of have this way of telling the history of the Bible from Tyndale to King James, that is essentially one could tell it with this sort of piggybacking revisions and translations with a bit of a detour for the you know the Catholic Douay Reims. But translation really um, to me, as I was going through, you know, every edition. Um, seemed to me to be a, a kind of incomplete way to think about how the Bible actually circulated in early modern England. And I became very interested, if you read this article, this chapter we wrote together, you could sort of see where, because we're kind of trying to stick to translation as a way to kind of build this story from you know X to Y, we kind of get, you can sort of see that we have all these detours because we're really interested in paratext um, in these different formats and these different kind of basically market categories. Um, that that sometimes line up with translation, but often sort of operate in these separate tracks from translation. Um, And so that chapter is a sort of weird thing where you can sort of see me um, or John and I sort of trying to sort of think about the Bible in a different way than translation, but still keep trying to come back. And so since then, I've been really interested in really trying to think about um, basically the, the Bibles that circulate in early modern, that is different product lines or different kinds of different kinds of books designed for different categories of use. Um, you know, you have pulpit Bibles, you've got private study family Bibles, you've got sort of semi-portable Bibles, you've got tiny New Testaments that sometimes get embroidered bindings and they're almost like a accessory or something. And so there are all these different kinds of Bibles and it, the translation doesn't always kind of fit with them, And one of the things that I wrote, I wrote an article about a couple of years ago um, for a collection on Shakespeare in the Bible, I think, a Shakespeare, Bible in the Shakespearean stage or something like that um, on what I call the trouble with translation. And this is an article that was really saying there's this particular Bible that people talk about, like this octavo portable kind of octavo format Bible um, mm-hmm. that was that was published with the Tyndale translation. And then there's these other Octavo Bibles that get published with the Bishop's Bible. And this is a a Bible translation that first emerges in 1568. It's a kind of Elizabethan pulpit folio Bible that's meant for reading in the churches, but it sort of exists also in smaller format Bibles. And scholars have always separated these particular Tyndale New Testaments from the Bishop's New Testaments just because they sort them in terms of translation. But -hmm. when you look at their title pages and you look at the, the stuff that's packaged with them, um, you know, guides to the reader, in, information about like what books, what chapters and what places get read at different services. Um, when you look at that paratextual material, it actually stays the same in the translation is what gets swapped out at a certain point. Mm-hmm. And so I use that as an opportunity to sort of think about like, how might we tell a history of the Bible that is not the... Sort of can separate out translation as a separate variable among many things that shaped Bibles, you know, Bible reception interpretation. So that gets me to beam. So for years, I've been wanting to do a new bibliography of English Bibles. Um, There's a famous one, Darlow, Mule, and Herbert, that was kind of published in the early 20th century, gets revised in the 60s. Um, And then there's the English short title catalog, which is like a bibliography of every English printed book. but even those categories, because they're printed books, you know, they have to have some sort of primary unit of organization to sort of get you through it, right? So, because they're linear, right? They, they, they're printed on a page. And so they have them by year, but then they have to have a sort of basic bucket. Like what is the main thing that this Bible is? It's like, well, it's an, it's an edition of the Bishop's Bible or it's an edition of the King James Bible. And with digital resources, you know, with databases, you don't have to prioritize any one kind of category or any one variable over another. And so I have been working on, but for a long time, very slowly, on essentially a new bibliography of English Bibles that not only identifies the sort of usual stuff like who printed it, when, where, like how many leaves is it, what's the collation formula, that kind of thing. I'm also trying, and what's the translation? I'm also trying to identify every paratext um, and then be able to say this, like, say you could say, like, what are all the Bibles that have, the Calvin preface to the that's associated with the Geneva Bible. That would be something you could do in Beam because not all quote unquote Geneva Bibles, this particular translation of the Bible that emerges out of the exile communities in the 1550s, um, late 1550s, um, you could actually search for any given paratext. And I think what you'd see, um, maybe not with the, the Calvin preface, but with many others, is that they actually exist in different formats and with different translations. And so Beam. Is an incredible amount of work because I have to go through one copy of every edition and Mm -hmm. identify all of the paratexts where they fit in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I've done actually a a lot of work toward this, and I've worked with some student, a student, a grad student here at the University of Texas on this. Um, But you know, as you might imagine, a lot of these Bibles like they exist in one library, like these small format, like little guys. Um, And so I haven't seen all of them, but I'm reasonably close. I'm going to regret saying this. I'm reasonably close to having the Elizabethan period done. I've started with the, like the 1520s and 30s and 40s. Okay, and
1: uh-huh.
2: But then I realized that like just accessing good digitizations or good copies of those is like incredibly, incredibly difficult. It, and there's uh-huh. so much heterogeneity in the market for sort of obvious reasons um, that I just, I'm like, you know what, I'll just do the Elizabethan Bibles. They're weird and they're complicated, but they're a li- little more stable and it's easier to sort of get access to more of them. So I'm reasonably close to being able to publish the 1558 through 1603 um, chunk of Beam Online.
0: That would be wonderful. Uh, and for uh, for our listeners too uh, i spoke with heidi craig who's your colleague over now at texas a&m yes. who does paratext also yes yes and for people who might have a, might be kind of new to the idea of paratext yep. that's really anything outside of what's considered the main body of the work and right. for bibles of course and for playtext for poems for everything you have uh famously in shakespeare's uh, first folio that uh list you know a paratext you know a Totally. like ben johnson and so forth and yep. pretty pretty famously with the uh, geneva bible the yep. marginalia the marginal yep. commentary that told you kind of how to read it in in yep. many ways and and this was common to bibles where it wasn't just enough to uh to put it out there you know you're yep. uh, is how it is put it out it's how it's uh, dis- you're saying distributed i think let's just use retail language uh, like, i think marketing this stuff. Uh, marketing stuff And uh, I don't think it's irreligious to those of us, uh, you know, those of of our audience uh, to I mean, these were people who were dedicated to this position, religious position in a in a period where it was heavily contested. People were burned and, uh, you know, uh, destroyed and so forth over these differences of opinion within Christianity. And this whole thing was driven by a print movement that uh, was uh, determined on the, on both sides to make sure people were educated in the way that they felt was best for them. So, yeah. uh, and it's, yeah. it's uh, I think for you and me, it's incredibly interesting because of yeah. just, just to see the intensity of the conflict there and in your work, I think when you get into these texts and you start looking at each individual text that you've had discoveries every, every day. Yeah, you, have to, you your, do. Your, I mean, you yeah. yeah uh you just see something and and you go okay well that's you know i <laughs> have to come back to that you know yeah, because yeah. we're trying to do this right now uh well in the elizabethan period your work i'll jump ahead a little bit on that yeah, please uh because you did some uh uh kind of thorough work is it the cheek vibe? the yeah, cheek the, new testament i'm obsessed am with i pronouncing testament? that right cheek yeah and, yeah
2: uh, i mean early modern, you just make it up right because we don't but yeah, we think it's cheap. We think it's Sir John
0: cheap. I've yeah. had people correct me, and then I've I've changed uh, on certain pronunciations. I've had people correct me, and then I've changed, and then somebody else will correct That's, me. Yeah, of course. And of course, I'm in Japan, so it happens all the time. But the uh, yeah, the cheek Bible, and that you're right, it's not uh, that nobody well talks about known. It. It's not known yeah. at all, yeah. and I feel uh horrible. I published an article, and I was talking about. Uh, I, I really could not find I, I was reading Gordon Campbell and another sure, sure. Uh, Daniel and uh, some other people and trying to find the distribution of the Bible b- before Matthew Parker's Bible sure, sure. and uh, basically in the 60s yep. and there was so little out there about how what sort of New Testaments for instance yep. were available right, because the, the Bible you couldn't print uh, well you know more about this. But I, you know, of course, these books are coming in from the continent, and of course they're being distributed. Perfect. And I don't know how do you track that kind of thing where you don't have a title page that says, you know, available in this shop. La di da, la di da. How do you sure. know uh, the? Uh, how do you assess? Let's say the amount of uh, well cheek New Testaments. Where were they printed? May I? Ask we know. That? So we know there are a couple of things we that actually help us
2: out with Bibles. We because people Bibles in England. Um, like a number of other kinds of publications um, from various points are controlled by a monopoly. And so just the sort of nuts and bolts, one of the things that's really great about studying English printing is that from 1557 onward, there's this organization, a trade organization, people often call it a guild, but it's a, like a trading company um, that's designed to protect the interest of its members it's called the Stationers' Company of London. Um, The Stationers Company of London and its members, a a subset of its members, get a monopoly to control printing for the entire country, Um, except for like a a few exceptions for Oxford and Cambridge, and that's like a contentious issue. But basically, printing in early modern England from the 1550s onward, and it's really true even earlier, um, but is concentrated in London. And, and, for, and it's controlled by a single trade organization, except in cases where the crown can supersede and grant what's called a patent to an individual person um, to have an entire monopoly over entire classes of books. Um, so from the 15, it's sort of a little bit complicated, but the Bibles are kind of printed by all kinds of folks. Um, in the late henrician period, there's a kind of clamp down, well, in the early, the mid henrician period, there's a clamp down on Bible publishing. Things go nuts under Edward. Anybody can print anything, but yeah. really, from the by the time you get into the kind of solid Elizabethan period, Bible printing in England is happening in London and it's happening with the King's Printer. Um, so the first um, King's Printer to have mostly Bible control is a guy named Richard Jug, and then there's this guy Christopher Barker who is, yeah. and then Robert Barker is the Barker who prints the King James. Yeah. So Bible publishing, there are continental printed English Bibles in the kind of very early years. The Great Bible, famously. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some continental like there's a Zurich edition there's some weird stuff that's happening kind of in the Tudor the mid-Tudor period mm-hmm. but really with the exception of like the douay Reims Catholic Bible and the first Geneva Bible really Bibles are coming out of London um, okay. and one of the things that I reason I mentioned that is aside from just being an interesting trivia point um, whereas like on the continent you know you've got Bible publishing and all these different centers the one of the things that's really nice about the, the, myth, the fact is that there's these monopolies and people get mad about when they're, mono- people get mad when they're monopolies today on products, right? And so one of the things that happens is that there's a lot of discontent about this Bible monopoly that it goes kind of crazy um, in the 1640s, like way late. And there's this kind of screed that this guy, um, Michael Spark, a publisher, kind of hot-blooded publisher, he writes his entire screed about the Bible monopoly and enumerates the edition sizes of what had been and are the most popular Bible versions. And like they include like the number of sheets. It's like the old, this translation or like this version with the notes in black letter in Cordo, it's 138 sheets. And so he tells us the print runs of these Bibles. Now, you know, you like with any historical testimony, like might not be hundred percent true. But he's giving comparative numbers like this edition was normally published in 1500 copies or 3000 or 6000. Um, And so we do actually have a little bit of information um, that's sort of backdated a little bit, right? It's a little late, it's looking, it's kind of retrospective, but it is giving us kind of edition sizes. Um, One of the hardest things about book history um, is that you want to make claims about reception, say, whether it be of the Bible or of Shakespeare or like whatever it, it might be you know, you might know how many editions there are that survive, like there's a copy of this edition of Hamlet and a copy of this edition, there are six copies, but, you know, you really don't know what the print run was. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we have sort of guesses about like, well, you know, a playbook probably was printed on average around 800 copies in the early 70th century, but it's like, we don't really have hard numbers for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And oddly enough, because people were, this guy was so mad about his Bibles, we kind of have good information relative to other kind of categories of books about how many were Printed in each edition, mm-hmm. and these cheap Bibles that I'm interested in, like six thousand copies, are the number of copies that this guy Michael spark says for one edition. And there are does there are tons of editions. I have a number somewhere. Yeah. In the so chapter. It,
0: but the printer again, uh, who's yeah. who's uh, who's printing and distributing these in so, in yeah. London? It, so the King's Printer. So the King's it's printer the King's, so got, it's a King's Printer. Okay. So it's still the monopoly. So
2: Richard Jug, um, Richard he Jug, is yeah. buddies with Parker. Matthew Parker. So this kind of high Elizabethan period. And you know, Parker works with Jug um, on the Bishop's Bible. So this kind of Elizabethan new church Bible that replaces the great Bible from Henry's reign. And he basically hooks up Jug with a de facto, with kind of a that's kind of complicated, but with basically a patent or monopoly on Bible publishing um, Mm -hmm. in the 15 kind of after and around the publication of the of the Bishop's Bible. And then Parker takes it over later. It's kind of complicated. But So Jug is printing them. He's also kind of publishing them in the sense that he's fronting the money and making the profits. He is a wholesaler. So one of the things to know is like, there's wholesale today. Like, you know, if I publish a book, like I'm not selling most of the copies direct to consumer. I'm selling them to other bookstops who sell them to people, you know, or I sell them to Amazon and they sell all of them now. But, but you know, there is wholesaling in this period and the book trade really depends on it. And so, you know, I may be Richard Jug and like, I probably have a retail location in London and you could come buy my Bibles from me, Mm -hmm. but you can probably buy Bibles in virtually every bookshop in London and further afield because he's a wholesaler. And so distribution, you know, you've got these single publishers, um, sometimes, you know, also these big Bible publishers of these big publishers of patents, they're often deputizing other people to print the books for them. And so they're often kind of subcontracting essentially the patent. Um, and having other people print for them. And so you've got, you know, a, public, a printer printing the books, distributing them to other retailers, and those retailers are selling them to people like you and me or whomever it was, the equivalent in you know, 1602 or whatever.
0: Well, for selfish reasons, I'm going to try to pin you down on this because you know so much about it, and, and, uh, and you're so, and you're so uh, deep in the you weeds have so many resources and you've been, um, uh, you're there. Um, I, I was trying to build, and I'm still trying to build on the point, that uh, you were talking about the stationaires register yeah. uh, and the stationaires company was what the charter was 57 in Mary's 57. That's right. reign and that That's was right. part of a Marian really kind of a, a Marian initiative to sort of clamp down on uh, Protestant publications and or, or, in, or any kinds of publications that may not have been uh, something that would have been liked very much by the crown sure. but the year after that Elizabeth came in and they yep. kept that they, they uh, reinstated that charter. They did not Church lift right. off the publication, so they they kept some of the. Uh, all right. So during the '60s, I'm yes. I'm wondering. Uh, I, I've done work on Paul's Cross Churchyard in yep. that area, to the um, totally, you know, beside the cathedral there and the uh, pulpit. And I'm tr- what I'm trying to say, basically, is that you have, a, you know, there, there's always a bit of growing literacy, you have availability of all kinds of texts, you have a pulpit surrounded by bookstores, and you have this phenomenon that I think is incredibly unique at that time, where you have a sort of broadcasting, people talk about broadcasting, or sure. they've made a, a kind of associations with the internet. But you, yeah. you, you have, I think, for the first time really a public that would go and listen to a sermon and would hear what they have read right they would hear what they have read and Mm. then what what was being said would end up in some form back in the print shop this echoing uh echo chamber really but uh whereas before with your bishop's bible with your pulpit's bible you have a preacher reading it's much more of a one-way uh street and so what we find with some of the sermons in there uh i think john king was the one who called him what what word did he, uh, he used uh, uh tedious <laughs> i think yeah, They can was, be uh, tedious. Yeah. yeah but i don't think they are if you are in that if you're in it and in yep. a large part of the public was in it and there was there these were high stakes things okay you had to uh, no, there was no in between. You had to either be a um, a Longhorn or an Aggie That's right. in, in That's Texas. Right. You know that you couldn't That's say, right. "Well, I like both teams." Right. Sure. Uh, so, uh, and you know, with uh, with Helderpay. So there are probably far more dramatic events for people. And you look and in, into the printed versions of these sermons, and they seem far too erudite for your normal lot of congregation, people. right? But. I don't think so. I think there were a lot of people who were up on these things through their reading, and if sure. they weren't, they would go and find out. And yeah. if they weren't quite that literate, maybe someone would explain it to them. So there, sure. there, uh, I, I see a lot more public engagement in these sermons than we, we could expect. Uh, from uh, perhaps our own experience uh, growing up and listening to sermons, you know, where they weren't the most engaging things in my experience. Uh, so sure. Sure. what Bible would be in the pockets, let's say, of the, yeah. uh, of the congregation at Paul's cross? Yeah, it's a, I mean, this is a, a really, so there are lots of very
2: complicated questions about the demographies that are con- the demographics that are consuming print. Um, I think one of the, you know, we have obviously have this incredible expansion of literacy and this, just in general, a a massive expansion in commodity consumption period, um, really in the 16th century. I mean, there's economic historians can really chart the rise of a kind of something like a proto kind of consumer society um, in the 16th century. And more people like people own like more wall, wall coverings, like even relatively humble people, but we don't really don't actually know a lot about just like how common like real demographic penetration is um, for anything really. I mean, we know people like some people have ballads, like we know that things got cheaper and we know a lot of humble people would have like a pocket New Testament, but it's a little unclear exactly. I just want to bracket that because it, you know, one of the things, even like, let's just say, like, let's, so I'm talking about these cheap New Testaments, right? Like the big, they have these editions of 6,000 copies. That's like wild times. That's 6,000 copies, man. That's only 6,000 copies. And, you know, around 1600, London has 200,000 people in it. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to sort of, help us make everything smaller. Because I think it's really important when we're thinking about these, both the kind of audiences for like Bibles and certainly the audiences for something like drama or the poetry of Sydney or Spencer, you know, these are books that are being published in like a thousand copies for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just worth making our world a little smaller just for the sake of any further discussion. But one of the things that's really, really interesting is that small format Bibles in the, in the Elizabethan period, especially, always almost always come in a package it's the bible or the new testament often a new testament because the new testament is a little bit easier to pocket but you often have a new testament english language new testament you've got your book of common prayer and you've got your sternhold and hopkins metrical psalter this is a version of the psalms that are sung in this kind of ballad meter they're very popular for entirely too long Um, that bewilder literary scholars today um, but they're incredibly popular and so one of the things that's really remarkable right is from 1568 through to 1611, you're supposed to be hearing the Bishop's Bible from the pulpit. This is the 1560s Elizabethan one, you know, it it tracks along. We know of cases where there are like preachers in wherever that are like using Geneva's or using old great Bibles, but really, you know, it's supposed to be the Bishop's. The Bishop's Bible early on, you know, it's not a Bible that people are buying for study Bibles, like quarto, these kind of like Brick. I wish I had. I I have some across the. I have Bibles at home here too that I own myself. Um, But you know, like they're like this, and you know, Bishop's Bible after 1584, like they don't publish it in cordo anymore, and so it's going from 1584 to 1603, and they've not while the or 1611 while the bishops is still the one that you're hearing from the pulpit ostensibly, and like they're not selling study Bible versions of it. Okay, so that's really interesting. Like what's going on here? Geneva Bible with its notes are incredibly popular. Well, you see these kind of smaller format New Testaments that are packaged with the BCP, the Book of Common Prayer, mm-hmm. and they're packaged with the Sternhold Hopkins Psalter. Those are both like Church of England books, right? Like the Sternhold Hopkins is the sing-songy version you sing at church, and the BCP is literally the church service. You see every translation packaged in these things. You see, you see English-language BCPs with like Greek Septuagint. I mean, you see everything sandwiched with these, these kind of Church of England worship books. And it's really interesting because, you know, there are the cheap New Testaments that I talk about that get the Bishop's Bible after 1568. And so that's actually a Bible that, you know, like I've got one across the, in the other room, that's like, it's the BCP, it's the Bishop's New Testament with this weird cheap paratextual apparatus. Um, and then there's the, um, the Sternhold Hopkins at the end. But like you see Geneva's with the same packaging, you see anything, King James later, um, And so it's very clear that if these small format Bibles are indeed portable and they are books that people are bringing to them to the service, that they're very comfortable hearing something a little bit different than what they're reading, something a little bit different than what they're hearing. And I think that's that's really, really important because I think we often fixate on these like the kind of hot buttonness of translation um, in the Elizabethan and kind of earlier period, even under James. I mean, translation is always fraught, but it's fraught for translators and it's fraught for kind of high church people who have these kind of theoretical or theological kind of fish to fry. But it seems one of the things when you look at the Bibles that are actually in people's hands, there's so much movement of translation. And it's very clear that people in multiple translations, and it's not because they're scholars, they're just, they just have different Bibles for different purposes. And for ways that I think are hard for us to wrap our head around, because we're used to reading all this polemic. It seems like people are really comfortable like having like, you know, having the new international version as opposed to the, I don't know, the living Bible, like whatever these modern you know, 20, 20th century translations are, that they're very used to hearing one thing and having another. Um, and it should just be said too, that like the differences between these translations for the most part is fairly minor. Um, you know, it's mostly kind of Tyndale with some modifications.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So,
2: which is just to say that like people are actually moving around and hearing something different than what they're reading. And being able to navigate that fairly well. And it's also, it should be said that these really small format Bibles, they don't have any notes, even when they're called, a, you know even if it's the Geneva translation, like they don't have the notes anymore because they're too small. Um, so there's, just to sort of put a pin on it, it's like the Bible market seems to tell us something different about the motivations of Bible readers. And translation of all the variables that I've tracked actually seems to be the thing that is less central in what drives the market it's really these packages of like, does it have the liturgical calendar? You know, does it have a sort of bracketed sort of almanac in it? Does it have this particular set of notes? Um, Does it have, I don't know, like the cross reference, the scriptural cross references that help me think about like the supersessionary logic of new versus Old Testament. Does it have any of that kind of stuff? And that seems to me to be what's really driving folks when you look at the Bibles that are actually in people's hands.
0: Well, you're talking about numbers. You're talking about Numbers, right. numbers yeah, like of uh, editions, books in hands that right. reflect yeah, books in hand that reflect public reception, that reflect uh, public understanding of what they're reading, and the I I love the idea. I have not thought of this enough of the combination text of the Book of Common Prayer and the uh, Sternhold and Hopkins. Yeah. I didn't think of it in those terms. I thought of those as separate text. Yeah. But they're, these, uh, you're talking about how they get commingled. And, you know, I bet now if you walk down the street somewhere totally. in, uh, in the... Um, it, you know in the whatever the Christian world that sure. and you said ashes to ashes dust to dust you would think that that was from the bible when it's from yep. the book of common prayer That's right, That's right. right? It's, yep. and uh of yep. course yep. The, the bible alludes to you know from the earth I brought in that sort of thing and we're of course talking in uh exclusively about translations in English yeah, from, right. uh from yeah because we you know the, <laughs> it would be a little hairy getting into all of the languages that you're talking about there but in English, and I am uh, going to try to make a uh, connection here between this biblical uh, this biblical reception, which we s- might seem to, to think is sort of uh, boring, and I I think at what that name? time is not boring at all. It, there's incredible public engagement there is a direct relationship has been the the point has been made many times by scholars a direct relationship between pulpit and stage, even though they're two different entirely different things. uh, But when you look, you dig down to the base of it, the mechanics, the uh, what you're talking about, the distribution network, and the enthusiasm there was for this type of print, right, it became the base for publishers and print, you know, booksellers to be able to make editions of a lot of stuff, they could take chances. And I think uh, maybe Toddle was one of the certainly um, early on, there were people who took chances, I think the um, Arthur Golding's uh, translation of uh, Abba's metamorphosis was a, you know, a risk venture. And Toddle's miscellany was a, a risk venture because he had one of those monopolies, I believe, to yeah. print outside of the, the uh, law book, the law book, so, yeah. so he had a look, he, he had that foundational, you know, he had uh, income and he could yeah, take these sure. chances and you had people coming to these stores. Well, why not sell them a poem uh, while right. they're there? And gradually over this time and you do play text also, right? So gradually yep. over this time, you see the growth of play text, which, you know, at one at some point, People said, "Oh, wow! There, we we can print these plays instead of just throwing away the papers or using them for something yeah. else, wrapping fish yeah. or whatever. People will buy these doggone things, you know. it's, it's yes, suddenly, yes. like, oh, wow! We have enough. We have enough fans here that we can burn a CD and people right. will buy it, you That's know. Right. So, um, so without we would not have any record of Shakespeare and all of the other uh, dramatists if there had not been this." Uh, awareness that you could, in fact, print plays after their performance using and that people whatever. would want to read them. Yeah, and, and buy them. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I don't think that if you didn't, if you did not have that material base, that uh, economic base, that was basically a religious uh, driven sort of industry, that you could have had the, uh, the play text. Uh, and yeah, it's, yeah, ultimately,
2: I mean, it's a really, you know, you, it's tr- tricky because one of the things that's really challenging, right, is that England doesn't publish all the books that it sells, right? And so there are tons of books that are being imported from the continent. And we don't really know a whole, as much as we would like to know. We know, you know, we know that the books that were published in England, right? And we know the books that were published on the continent, at least lots of them. But we don't really know, like, so say I'm a bookseller and I publish some books. They might be books of poems. They might be sermons. They might be whatever. They might be all of the above, but it's not exactly clear where my money's coming from. It doesn't. It's not clear what the, my retail offerings look like. A lot of scholars in book history today, you know, do a lot of work to say like, oh, this publisher and this is what the publisher put out, and it looks like this publisher has a specialization in X, and they do because that's what they published. But in terms of actually understanding like what that represents of their business. That's much harder to do because, you know, like for example, most people don't realize that every bookseller in, in London sells rare books or sells used books too. And so, you know, it's like, well, okay, well, what percentage of them of what they're selling are like used books and like what kind of used books are they? Are they, do they sell everything? Do they sell specific kinds of books? And so there's this gen, this kind of level of opacity actually about what we know about the retail experience, which is also how we don't really understand exactly what the business models of a lot of these guys are um you know or women are we don't really know because we have some inventories for example of some um like of when people get sued or when they die we have some some booksellers inventories and they usually show that they have all kinds of weird stuff and we don't quite know what it, what their what their business looks like which is just to say that it does seem like there, there are booksellers, I mean, famously, right, Caxton, like the first book he publishes in England is Chaucer, at least the first kind of substantial book. And so literature is, one of the things I, I want to try to emphasize is that leisure reading is a major part of the book trade from the very beginning. Um, you know, okay. I, think, I think it's, because it's, I think, I mean, I certainly think that it's absolutely true that look like if you got the Bible patent man, like you would want that Bible patent. If you got the Sternhold and Hopkins patent, you wanted that patent. You wanted also to be the guy who owns the rights to print the sermons of Henry Smith, right? The silver-tongued preacher Henry Smith because those things were incredible bestsellers. You wanted, you wanted those rights. And, and there are no equivalents for like patents of like bestsellers of literature really, unless you kind of squint your eyes and turn Sternhold Hopkins into literature, like you squint your eyes. And turn, you know, I don't know, um, something like the Temple um, into something that's not a religious book, right? It's a, it's not it's not the same as a play, right? The, the mm-hmm. William Herbert's the Temple. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's true that you don't have like people like hankering after like what we think of now as like kind of capital L literature um, mm-hmm. as these sort of like bedrock things. But we do have publishers that seem to be specializing in literature and considering it a major part of their their publishing stream. From the very beginning, and drama is kind of fascinating in this respect because it it seems like publishers, you know, you get early editions of Terence, right? Like he's Terence, he's the, the you know, the Roman poet who's like taught in schools. You get early translations of Terence in the kind of book, versions like the whole plays, and then you get like excerpts from Terence, and then you get these kind of Seneca translations that are kind of coming out. You get these Tudor interludes. But one of the things that it's not, it's not, stationers really don't seem to know who the, what the playbook is for
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: in the early years. Mm-hmm. A lot of the earliest playbooks will say like six people can play this play. Here are all the other parts. And those scholars have looked at that and said, ah, yes, the first playbooks are for performances because they literally say, this is like what, this is how you would do it. You could double these guys, you double these characters. You could have like, if six, you have six people, your house can put it on. Mm-hmm. But one of the things to get back to this kind of numbers issue is that okay let's just say conservatively that like an edition of I don't know like Gurton's Needle right or Lusty Juventus let's say let's get a really religious play like an interlude you know let's just say that the print runs 500 copies and I think that's probably about right for like a mid-Tudor play okay so f- 15 16 70s mm-hmm. um, that's, there's no universe in which all 500 people who buy that playbook are thinking about performing it. Like there's just no way. I mean, I mean Ooh, it's just yeah. the numbers are, the numbers exceed the performance yeah. context. Like not even if every big house in like England had a copy, like it's, there aren't, there aren't, yes, there are probably 500 big houses, but you know, they're not all buying it. And so there's something that's interesting that, that the publishers of playbooks are kind of imagining a use case that the actual market, the market performance of drama shows they've sort of misunderstood, they've, they've artificially limited the market for the way that they've produced the books. So like, these are, this is how you would play it. And scholars, I think, have sort of had this kind of interesting way of sort of thinking like, oh, there was this period in which plays were published to be performed. And then there's this shift of like plays as the commercial theaters develop in the 1580s and 90s in particular, there's this sort of sense of like, oh, and then the play book becomes a way to sort of imagine this theatrical Climate that you either saw and then want to go back to, or you didn't see and you want to think about. So, that's this kind of that's a very performance oriented taxonomy, or a kind of like I don't know, like an ontology of the English playbook, right? A reception study of the English playbook is that playbooks are for performancey things because the, the books themselves seem to be interested in that, right? It's like you could put it on yourself, or like it was performed by the King's Men, or like it was performed in the Globe Theater. But one of the things that's just so remarkable is that, like, you've got the, all these playbooks that first off are selling 500 copies of an edition, and you're like, how not everybody's performing that. And then you get further along, and you've got all these people. A lot of the collectors we know who had the playbooks are people like in the provinces. I mean, maybe they came back to London sometimes for shows and to do London things. But we have this sort of weird world in which I think all the evidence, from my perspective, points to the, the realization or points to the, the idea that people read plays as a narrative form. Um, And they really are good at it in ways that we're not. And so in fact, like, honestly, like, I'm not, like, I'm not a performance guy. Like, I get kind of uncomfortable in theaters. Like, I'm not used to watching plays. It's just they kind of creep me out. I'm not a drama guy.
0: (laughs) Reverse reverse stage fright, audience. I get a little, yeah, it just (laughs) like, like,
2: I'm just socially, it's weird for me. And so, (laughs) but, so I've really what brought me to drama. So what brought me to kind of understanding the religious literature is like, okay, so like, how do you make a book that's as big as Fox's Book of Martyrs? This like famous compendium, English church history, that's Protestant polemic. Like, how do you make a book that big? And so that was got me, got me into the Reformation stuff. And then I was like, well, actually like, okay. So I know how that got made, but that's kind of a big book. And it, it's sort of I like kind of in, know its audience already, but like, what's, what's going on with Bibles? And so I'm thinking like, well, okay, so let's think about the Bibles. And so I've told you a little bit of my thinking about the Bibles, but then I'm like, well, why do, you, this is what drives me about when I do, when I'm an English literature scholar ostensibly, the question that drives me is like, who, when, and why did people read this stuff? Like, so I'm interested in literature as a kind of social phenomenon. And I want to know what work literature does for people, right? I mean, if you get these kinds of, I mean, this I'm very inflected with the work of somebody like Pierre Bourdieu, somebody who's thinking about, a sociologist who's thinking about yep. sort of the power work or the social work that engaging with art or culture does for you. So mm. it's kind of, in some ways it's kind of limiting, right? Because I think literature certainly exceeds its social utility. But when we think about, you know, the reception studies, um, just sort of like questions like who owned playbooks and mm. like, what did they think they were doing with them? Mm-hmm. And like, why would you read a play when you could be reading these novels that are being produced in Spain or like in France? like. Or like something like, what? Like why do English writers stop writing weird stuff like the Arcadia or Euphoies or these other prose fiction texts, these kind of n- things that are actually, even though they're impossible to read for modern audiences, they actually are more like a, no- a proto novel than certainly a play is. But you have this sort of weird world that by the time you get into the late 16th century, it's very clear that people read plays and that publishers know that people read plays and people then start collecting plays and we have got lots of evidence of people collecting plays. Um, and it sort of it seems like to me that, that if we sort of think about the market and, not, and think actually less about the paratext in this instance, right? the paratext leads you to think like plays are for thinking about performance, playbooks are for thinking about performance. You just look at the numbers and the patterns of reception. It seems like people really just like reading plays for fiction. I mean, they like them for other reasons too. They like to think about the play they didn't see or the play they saw. But they're really, really good at thinking about plays as creating fictional worlds for us to imagine ourselves in, um, and we can still do that today. But I think it's it's actually not a literacy that we're well developed in. Like it's I don't think when even when I read a play today, I'm much better at thinking about the stage business. That's how I'm trained. I'm less good about imagining Verona or like imagining like Troy or something. I'm less at, I'm less good at imagining a kind of fictional world that is fully populated by like individuals, not individuals in this kind of like 19th century novel sense, but like literal individual people that exist in this narrative world that I'm supposed to know something about maybe before I pick up the novel or that has this sort of aspect of um, a broader fictional reality, a fictional reality within it that, that I don't think we, we, even really good critics today, don't really think about the, the drama of the period as fulfilling a kind of major narrative role for people. And I think one of the stuff, that the work that I've done on English playbooks really suggests to me that um, for a large portion of the audiences of English plays, there's something that people are very good at reading for the story. Um, and that, that I think is something kind of fascinating because if we, also too, I guess, and this is the last thing I'll say before I shut up, um, is that you know, we think about like, okay, so if I'm a kid, And I'm a kid from an affluent enough family to have like gone to grammar school. I'm reading Seneca. I'm reading Terence pretty early. I may be seeing, we may be putting on plays at my school so it's not as though there's necessarily like a priority of print over performance or reading over performance, but there's certainly a simultaneity. Um, And so one of the things that I'm really, this is kind of one of my hobby horses is that drama as a print, a market category exists from the very beginning of English printing. I mean, we have Rastel, we have early plays from the early 16th century. So a couple, I mean, not as early as Caxton, early Caxton, but with the beginning of the 16th century. And we know that students are reading Seneca, they're reading Terence, they're reading all this stuff. And that's an experiential background that they have in addition to whatever experience they have with performance. Mm-hmm. And so the play world um, is actually one that the, the world of drama as a place that is imagining kind of interpersonal interaction and what might be, a, depending on the play, a more or less richly developed fictional space. That's something that people are really good at dealing with um, as readers in the period. And the work that I do on drama sort of tries to kind of operate from the beginning where we actually see drama as a native print category rather than something that is always sort of struggling for surrogacy as this kind of, sub, you know, this kind of surrogate role for like kind of standing in for performance or imagining future performance, but rather drama as something that has always been a sort of vital print or vital reading genre for for folks.
0: Yeah, this, this is good. I'm going to try to bring about five boats into the harbor at the same time, and I hope I'll i will be very uh, impressed with you. Yeah, <laughs> but All right. So I go to see a production of Hamlet and I get, and it goes fast and I, okay, something was in, something was in that speech that it was really good and let's buy another ticket maybe and go and go again and listen again. And, uh then suddenly oh i can get the play text right sure, and this sure. is i'm old enough to remember when you had to buy the yeah. uh you had to buy the cd or the vinyl album sure. in order to get the lyrics to the song yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's some funny there's some <laughs> there's some yeah. funny stories about what we thought was said that's right, right? Uh, yeah. uh what uh, excuse me while i kiss this guy exactly you know exactly. Yeah, right so it's a, the famous joke and you go oh wow this is it okay so you have the lyrics again and it's a, it's a combination thing. Yes, you can sing the song. You can try to sing it yourself. You can, sure. if you have your own little band, you can m- maybe perform it at a, a pub or a bar or something, maybe get some people and do copy, that sort of thing. But it's not so that's not you're saying Not that's not the main part of it. Most of us just wanted to hear, maybe sing along, and, and understand the performative elements of these things. But one of the reasons I think that you're kind of nervous about the performance element is that you deal with things that that are physical objects. Yes, they, that's right. they, they stay in place and unless they're destroyed and right. the play, the performance is gone. Right. right. So that's if right. I, right. Right. I can tell you about a performance I saw back in the day when Glenda Jackson played, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Cleopatra, but I, there's only so much I can give you there. Right. Yeah. And right. I get frustrated nowadays about people who have so they're overly concerned about, uh, intellectual property or uh, cultural property, whatever, and they have these great performances that are on DVD that you could distribute, you could put out there, but it's gone. And then it dies. A a number of years go by and people forget about it and people die off and so forth. And then it's it's just gone. And you say, no, don't do this, you know, put it out there. And so uh, I, I think probably what might make you nervous in a play is this is going. Right now, as I see it, I can just see it evaporating, you know, unless there is something uh, afterwards that I can go to recreate this scene in my mind to make it preservable. Uh, and so uh, that brings us to the world of me in my memory and my experience, my world of um, going to uh, there's an old, there's a joke. I think it's a Facebook joke uh, or a meme or something. In my day, when if you missed the movie, you never saw it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was in the theater for yeah. two, three weeks. If that's you right. didn't go, you never saw the play ever. Your whole life. And then we move from that world. That's that's a movie. That is a film thing. That's uh, you know totally. That is a physical. You can replay it, but you just didn't have the way you to didn't just, own it. You couldn't afford it, it so. right? right? Couldn't afford it. Didn't own it. Uh, so then, suddenly, VH, VHS, VHS, VHS. VHS. Oh, man. And go. Oh, oh, I can practice that De Niro speech. You know, yeah, I can buddy. practice doing that. You know, with my buddies and that kind of thing. You sure. know, I mean, we're not sure. going to be actors, but and replay it and replay it. I remember raising Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my mm-hmm. roommate and I at that time must have watched it two hundred awesome. times, That's we, we, we had it memorized. We had a. Uh, uh, we had several movies memorized usually uh with sure. uh you know kind of uh, spicy uh, that's right exactly well yeah
2: you got to be what's the point of memorizing anyways
0: so um, the character of frank booth in blue yes, velvet yes of course of course um, so um but we had no way of doing that before sure. you know, you saw sure. it and uh there was you know unless you have one a super duper uh memory you yeah. you couldn't do it so right. The, you have done work with VHS. That's I do, two. yeah. Uh, let's talk about that with the Beinecke Library. Uh, just a, Yale, Yale of, Library, yeah. Yeah, out of uh, Yale. Uh, and the um, what was that? Yeah, the physical objects, VS, VHS as artifact.
2: Yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, so look, like you've sort of, my interest is in sort of how the artifacts of media that survive can give us a sense of like what people were up to and what they're interested in. And also, I think also, you know, how it is that media change also generates different kinds of social phenomena. So, you know, I think like, okay, so VHS collecting now, now that like the kids who grew up on VHS, you know, the folks who like in elementary school and middle school and high school, you know, had VHS in those kind of f- fundamental kind of coming of age things. There's a big nostalgia market for that now. So I was working with a, friend of mine, David Gary, who is at the Yale University Library, the main library, not the Beinecke-Grebrook library. Um, and you know, this was before, this was kind of right as VHS collecting was kind of taking off. But you know, a lot of folks now kind of around my age, you know, sort of like, I don't know, in their 30s and in 40s, are really coming back to these things that provided these formative social experiences for them, right? They either you know, like the spicy lyrics, or they saw something a little lewd, or they this is what they watched at Sleepover with Tommy, or whatever the hell it was that, you know, that they want to, it's a kind of nostalgia collecting. But in that, you know, nostalgia is complicated and weird and it's its own thing. But the fact is, as you were just suggesting, that, that the idea that you could go pick up a movie and see it again or see it for the first time or just say, I want to see it and then be able to follow through on that, you know, that's a big deal. And And I would say, I mean, yes, there is you know, yes, like there are some super rich people who had 16 millimeter projectors and like maybe you saw like a movie at summer camp or something, or, you know, you like the, maybe the movie came through town or maybe you were really, and this is, you know, cable is cable television is kind of coming up right around the same time as home video. So the seven late seventies are kind of, second half of the seventies are a big time for both of these things. But you know, it's, it was hard to see movies and it was also hard especially if you were in like the suburbs or something you know it was increasingly hard and you have this thing problem too where like there are a lot of smaller movie theaters the smaller movie theaters are going out of business with the rise of home video and so you have this kind of combination of it's actually being harder to see movies in the theater especially smaller movies especially genre movies Mm -hmm. and it's also like look like you can see it on your own with your friends and you can be loud or you could watch something a little bit untoward or you you know i mean look like the beginning of any market is pornography things like that right like these are an exercise videos eventually but things that that sort of depend on privacy that you might be kind of embarrassed about like home video just owns that world and then you know you have <coughs> by like 1987 home video is making more than theatrical box office for most of the big studios you've got you know, by that point, you've got people making movies, entirely new pieces of art just for distribution on video. I mean, think about like, I mean, home video is the quality may be a little bit different, but like the Netflix era, right? Like that you can make these series and not have to worry about like a broadcast channel, like this kind of, and just streaming and that people could subscribe directly to that. Like home video in the late 1970s, especially in the 80s is, you know, the predecessor of that, that kind of on-demand, video. And so one of the things that's like, this is a major, a major sort of future of like kind of late 20th century life is the video. And, you know, nobody's collecting the stuff. You know, I mean, it used to be universities have big, had big VHS collections, because they could teach with them. Um, And so it was a way to build a film studies program. And Betamax was super hot, you know, and Betamax was big. and, And, you know, a lot of film scholars like stuck with their Betamax tapes of like, whatever, you know, like Battleship Potemkin or something until like the end came and DVD and all that. But but really universities just had them as like kind of crappy surrogates because they didn't necessarily have 35 millimeter prints or 16 millimeter prints to show their students. They weren't, they weren't like a Yale or something. And so universities kind of completely deaccessioned that stuff with DVD. Um, but then like now we've got this problem, right? Where all the VHS tapes, a lot of them are being thrown away. You know, they've been thrown away. Um, you've got these kind of diehard nostalgia weirdos who are starting to collect them. But institutions don't have these resources available for students of 20th century, the 20th century world to study. Um, and in the same way that like my Bible stuff is interested in paratext, it's like, okay, so sure you've got the new Blu-ray of a movie you know, that was originally made in, say, Blue Velvet or something like that. So probably that Blu-ray has like the trailer, the original trailer on it. It's probably got tons of interviews, tons of amazing new stuff. But like the language that was used to sell that VHS tape in 1985 or whenever the VHS tape kind of comes out, the actual product that was sold, the thing that you looked at at the video store that like made you go, that's the movie for me. Um, you know, that, those artifacts are, are d- disappearing. And that if you wanted to tell like, a, like in the same way that like, if you wanted to tell a reception history of the Bible, many people have done that. And my argument there is like, you have to actually look at the books and like you have to look at the books at scale to really understand what the trends were, or you don't really understand, if you're just reading the Bibles, you don't really understand the sort of trends, you don't really understand the sort of world that Bible reception is happening in. This sort of same argument I would make with the the movie stuff. It's like, yes, we know all of the movies, We have a list, like here's all the movies that came out in like July of 1987, with box office and home video, fine. But if you don't actually have the artifacts to study, you don't necessarily understand like, like how is this movie relating itself to that movie? You often get, this movie is like, this is, it's got a pull quote from some crappy review and it's like, this is the new this. Or like, if you liked Army of Darkness, you'll love this movie. Um, and that, all that copy, all of like the weird box graphic art, all of that stuff is not necessarily traveling with the movie as it gets remediated into the modern world, right? Like when you go on Netflix, Often like Netflix doesn't have the rights to the poster art even. So you've just got like a weird graphic that's like somebody made it in Photoshop yesterday. And so all of which is to say, like we've got this entire kind of massive chunk of late 20th century culture that literally is starting not to exist. The physical artifacts Mm -hmm. of it are not, don't exist. And Mm -hmm. if we want to really tell the story of like, You know, what did middle income families in like suburban Ohio or wherever, wherever I'm from, you know, what what kind of things were kind of they interested in or like what kinds of what was the media landscape of a kid that grew up in the Midwest in the 1980s who now is making new movies. Right. So like we've got all of these, I mean, famously, somebody like Tarantino, right, like Tarantino worked at a video store and he watched like all the weird stuff. But Tarantino yeah. is somebody who literally couldn't exist without the video store. I mean, yeah, he's rich yeah. now and he's got prints of everything. Yeah. But, you know, you've got entire generations of art maker, even if you only care about art in the, the production of art, like all of these influences are video store influences. And, you know, outside of some oral histories where somebody's like, man, when I saw that cover of that movie at the video store when I was 10, it like changed my life, man. Like you've got some of those, in, that kind of testimony. But without the artifacts, you don't really understand how to evaluate assessments like that. Like, did the movie actually look like that? Or is that a memory that's kind of misrepresented? You just don't have the raw data to be able to establish these chronologies or these kind of broader milieu, these media milieu for folks. And so I got involved in this kind of harebrained idea with my friend, David Gary, who we were like, you know, we Sterling Sterling Library had, had some extra money. And we found this collector in Dayton, Ohio that had a very good kind of genre video collection. And so we went there and bought it and got it shipped back. And it still is the only, I mean, it's kind of sad because I don't know really what's being done with it right now, but it really, it is the only university collection of VHS acquired as a historical medium. So people have VHS and so like when we published, like we were the first ones to do it, Um, people were like, we've had VHS collections since the dawn of time, young sir. But they're not, but but these are not collections that were built for like the VHS equivalent of a book historian, right? Where, where a book historian wants to understand like where was this, who owned it? Like, wait, was this owned by this rental store in Oklahoma? Like they, these kinds of things, right? The same things we'd ask like, whose library was this playbook in? Nobody was, is, was collecting tapes and st- or still really is collecting tapes um, as a, a kind of artifact that could give us some purchase on mm-hmm. the reception of like one of the major media phenomena of you know, our lifetime really.
0: Well, there are paratexts in there, too. uh, Yes, exactly. 100%. And uh, so the, uh, I'm triggering on any number of of things that could be that you're bringing up here, because that's what collections do. I mean, collections serve people with, um, the, you know, a, a billion interest, right, that, yeah. that are yeah. trying to make uh, a billion points about this yes. and that. But I think uh, what you're talking about, some of those uh, VHS tapes segued into DVDs that segued <laughs> into sure. streaming, and you still have access to yeah. on Netflix. And yeah. uh, some didn't make it. And it's a lot too many. Anyhow, so VHS, the object, I would imagine what you would do is you would you would digitize the VHS, so because it, it wears out after a certain amount of viewings, uh, just like the book wears out after a certain amount of uses usages. So you could, but you still had the physical object there, and you yeah. can say, "This is a uh, if, well." That's it. It's the same thing as digitizing a text in order to preserve. Sure. Sure. Uh, the text. So you, you don't want a lot of people putting their fingers on that Gutenberg. Uh, they, and I don't want I want to be able to do it myself, you know. Yeah, of course. Uh, right. But uh, I don't want millions of other people doing it because that will sure. destroy it eventually. So the other point I wanted to make was the Tarantino point. I'm in no way uh, comparing Tarantino to Shakespeare, but there are sure. a lot of comparisons that I can make in the sense that his movies and a lot of other directors, but his is sure. a very uh, salient example of of living in the video store and sure. drawing from all of these sources in the That's movie right. and getting all of us into the audience. I'm of a certain age when I see Pulp Fiction, you're of a certain age when you see Pulp Fiction sure. and I'm getting it, you know, I'm getting oh, all, right. okay, well, uh, uh, yeah, those, those guys, of course they're in black suits and they're bad guys. We're yeah, automatically right. bad right. guys. And, uh, the, um, what was it? The black exploitation yes, uh, flicks sure. of the seventies and sure. so forth. I was old, I'm old enough when the movie came out to have remembered going to see some of those right, right. because there was a you know segregated town I was in the south but mm-hmm. we would go to what was designated the black movie theater which had sure. all the best movies Sure yeah, of course that's where the black exploitation films were and all the cool mo- uh, cu- cool music there sure. and that was perfectly okay there were no problems yeah. there you know the problem was on the other side you know when people wanted to you know in segregation sure. but anyhow also Bruce Lee. you, you yeah, the saw, side Bruce side, yeah. Lee never played on the white side. It was all cowboy right. over there. And there's right. some, some great cowboy. Sure. But Bruce Lee and those uh those movies, the uh the kung fu movies and so right. forth. We just them. loved them. But after they were seen, they were gone. And yeah. then they yeah, made yeah. it into VHS. Yeah. And then later on, of course, Tarantino uh sees them and goes, Oh goodness, I can this is the best, I can right? make a I can make a curry out of this, you know. Yeah. And yeah. uh and pretty much that's what Shakespeare does, but particularly in comedies. You know, I have okay, a student sure. today who's I'm going to talk about um, sources for one of the for a 12th night. And uh, we get into all the various places where Shakespeare's drawing from, uh, well, of course, Ovid, that was everybody did that, but sure. all the way through for this, uh, you know, it, at least from the 60s throughout. Through audiences who are hearing echoes of stuff that they had read and heard about on the streets, sure. uh, In in the drama, yeah, yeah. Um, What I'm going to do after after this is I'm going to make segments. It takes us a little time to get these produced. That's fine. So long form. So uh, uh, your your segment will show up. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Take your time. So for people who don't have uh, the time to sit and listen to you and I talk about the the text uh, textual production in the sure. 16th century or sure. VHS, I think right, right. Fast, all of this is fascinating. But uh, they can jump forward. But this would be the segment where we talk about you are Ohio State uh, undergrad, and yes. I'm interested in this. You studied with prestigious scholars in prestigious institutions, of course, but I, the people are so good that if I were, knowing what I know now, if I were uh, younger uh, your age, and and, uh, even younger than you are now, and yeah. thinking, let's see, am I going to, live, if I were visited by the angels, right? And it right. said, here are the people you get to study with, uh, you know, on a string of people from uh, Alan Farmer to John sure. King to, let's say, Hannibal Hamlin, we mentioned before, but you go from there to Yale for, and uh, yeah. Kasdan and David, Kasten, yeah. David yeah. Kasdan yeah. and Keith Wrightson. I was on yeah. a panel with them at a SAA oh, conference good. about 10 years ago. Oh, you were ago. on that, you
2: were on their, you were in their, oh, um, the history. their seminar
0: yeah we were uh yeah we were uh admonished by a scholar for being historical how about that uh, even even at 2012 it sounded yeah, nice. yeah yeah, i remember that
2: i, I was at that i think I was an auditor in both
0: of those yeah okay so we we may have been we've in the, the, we've same, been in the room. same room we're in the that? same room you know this is yeah, the way it yeah. goes anyhow so uh that was so much fun and what great people what great yeah, people yeah. to have studied with and, uh, you know, I've, I have appreciated uh, Keith, <laughs> there's a kind of funny story, I guess we can be anecdotal you, uh, at Shakespeare conferences, you and I know you go in there and in my case I had been to a Shakespeare conference, the SAA for years. And so I walk in there and I'm going through, and I see these people I haven't seen in years. Sure, oh, sure. I'm going to this call. I'm going, well, we'll see you at the reception. We'll see you right, at Exactly. the yeah. That's what it's and for. I yeah. walk in there and it's like a billion people in this ballroom in Boston. Right. I, I didn't that's see right, it was Boston, that's these right. people again. It's like, Whoa, you know, you see them on the highway and they're gone. And so I'm in one corner around a bunch of people I didn't know. And I'm going, well, I don't know what to do here. I'm going to go to the bar, sure. have a drink. And there's Keith yeah. Wrightson. And oh, he- Keith. Yeah, he was looking around, too, and uh, he knew, you know, we didn't know each other, but immediately he made it happen. Talking, right. We had plenty to talk about. He's such know. a sweetheart. I love Keith. Oh, he is wonderful. He is. And his work is absolutely very much cutting edge, uh, even now. But in, in his time, yeah. he um, did what uh, he and oh, I can name a number of people. John King, of course, uh, um, Martin Ingram uh, and uh, uh uh, John, uh, yeah, Kenny, uh, uh just a hundred people and I, I don't yeah, want to totally. anybody out, but to go through, uh, OSU, are you from Ohio originally? Or
2: yeah, man. I'm from, I grew up in Columbus. So I, I mean, Columbus. I just went, I just went to college, like where I was from. I mean, yeah. I was born in a, like a, a Rust Belt town called Lima, but yeah.
0: no you know. need to, no yeah. need to uh, do anything, but walk down the street, go to college. You got to, uh, Ohio State. Yeah. And that incredibly fine faculty at, uh, in, in the English department at uh, OSU, and you—you got—you—you uh, you found out you were a literary nerd. When did you find yeah. out? When was it? When was it that? Oh no, I'm not going to—I'm not going to be able to make a whole bunch of millions of dollars in uh, business or go into what—sure—what sure. what, what my grandmother wants me to, uh, law or be a doctor or right, something right. that'll impress the uncles and aunts at Thanksgiving. When did it, when did you realize that it was just not it was going to be a literary thing for you
2: yeah i think well so like i you know was a like a like a computer nerd when i was a kid Mm. and i worked and i actually worked in the so like i'm of just the right age to have graduated high school like right when the first dot-com boom was very boomy like at the at the like the when it was too boomy where it had to bust and so i got hired as a network engineer like when i was 17 like just out of high school working for this like tech you know telecom company and made a bunch of cash doing that and then i was like oh this bomb is about to drop like this is all going to explode and like my ceo is going to go to jail it's going to be bad (laughs) and so i like that literally happened and so i um i decided to go to college but i was going to be a biochemical engineer like so i was like hard science guy because i didn't know like humanities like i just watched old movies and like whatever and so i realized, like, I burned myself on acid, and I didn't like doing, I, I like theoretical things. Um, so I ended up pivoting, and oh, this is so silly. I, my major was in philosophy, and so I did medieval and early modern philosophy, and film studies, actually, in an English department. Um, and then I had a women's studies minor through the kind of philosophy stuff. But the but what happened, is, so I got really interested in, like, ideas, like, any, like, too proud of himself, like, guy in his early late teens early 20s like i've got deep thoughts man and so i liked philosophy but i realized that i took i had to take so i thought that i might want to teach high school literature i don't know what the hell i was thinking but i thought that in time and so i had to take a shakespeare class because the pre-ed track at ohio state like required that as this sort of thing so i was like okay i'll take shakespeare oh, i don't want to do this it's going to make me miserable <laughs> there was a there was a, a a visiting assistant professor by the name of Alice Daly, who was there just fresh out of grad school, I think I think fresh out of grad school in UCLA, and she taught the Shakespeare course. Well, she happened to be a John Fox person, and so she ended up writing a book about martyrologies down, later down the line. But she was there for a year, and I took this like Shakespeare class, and I honestly don't remember much of the Shakespeare in it, but I remembered that because we had to talk about religion in the context of thinking about early modern literature, like you can't understand this stuff unless you're doing some religion stuff. And I was really, I realized that what had made me so excited about the philosophy that I had been studying was less the sort of propositional wrangling, although I kind of enjoyed that as a haughty 20 something or like 19 year old or whatever. But I, I really was interested in like, what, what about, like what makes, why do people care about this stuff? Like, what is the social implication? So it's this kind of always getting me back to this kind of question, of like why do people do the things they do and how does it either serve them or alienate them from various communities? And so the the religion stuff helped me think about these kind of like high level theological discussions that I was interested in and sort of bringing them down to the sort of brass tacks of like living in society and interacting with people. And the literature provided me with a sort of weird, sort of almost like a, it's like, you've got the religion, you've got these people that are entering the social world, then you've got this other sort of cultural outlet. And I was interested in literature as a kind of repository for, of evidence for these kind of social phenomena. And so like, I liked the literature because it helped me understand how at least some people thought about the religious world that they lived in and how religion in particular had an impact on sort of people's relationship to a community or a society or whatever the hell that might be. That's a very Keith Wrightson kind of thing, right? Like society. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so I sort of pivoted into the literature stuff because I was interested in the sort of these social questions about high level theoretical discussions. Um, and then I got interested in the book. So then I took a 16th century survey with Alice Daly um, right after that. I was like, got one more semester in college. And then she introduced me to Fox there. And so I actually didn't know, I didn't learn Fox from John originally, John King, even though like that's the obvious thing you would do. So I learned it from Alice daily. And then I got into interested in this sort of book history kind of phenomenon. So the books then provided me with a way to think about both religion and literature as a kind of social phenomenon because books are kind of fundamentally social objects. Yeah. And so that's my story about getting into. Well, uh, pardon me words. for
0: asking if this is probing, but th- th- yeah, you have a religious background, anything that uh, was. Could- yeah, not really.
2: I mean, so, you know, it's like, I've got like my dad, my parents were born in this like Rust Belt town called Lima, Ohio, um, Lima, but Lima, because it's Ohio, you know, we pronounce things differently up there <laughs> and we destroy like the English destroy French words. We can, in America can destroy all words. Yes. Um, and so you know, I was born in line, but my parents were from there. And so my, you know, like, look, like, like I grew up in a family where there were Christians and there were Catholics. And it's not because like, they were particularly polemical about it. That's just like, that's how Protestant the sort of Midwest that they were in was. And so like religion was just sort of bedrock and but particularly my father's family was very poor. Um, and so like, they're very much have that sort of like depression era kind of religion kind of background. But neither of my parents sort of really were super into it, but you could tell that they thought it was important socially to sort of like at least have it as a thing. Like what else would you do? Like you go to church. It was very interesting to me because you could see that they thought it was something that you should be doing, but didn't really have the kind of propositional commitment to like any of it really. And, and And I think maybe that's for me sort of what has always sort of made it a social thing for me because I saw this sort of drive for them, particularly at raising a child, you know, like, like oh, we should probably make our kid, like, we should probably do this for the kid because that's what they did, my, our parents did for me, for us. And I think it was, I was always kind of perplexed by this sort of weirdness of like them not really being into it, but feeling like they should. And it is, I guess maybe that's it. It's like this kind of sense that religion is something you do for social cohesion, but at a time in sort of 20th century America where like it was kind of optional at that point to actually believe in it. Like the the world was secularizing in certain ways that like kind of like, well, is this really what we need to be doing? And so I think, so like I actually come from a family that is not really that religious. And in fact, I think that's kind of what's interesting, interesting about it to me because I've had this kind of a bit of an arm's length distance from religion my whole life where I've seen it and understood what it does for people. But you know, like there was times like I was kind of a bad kid and like, so, Like I was sent to youth group and stuff and like did some of that stuff. So I've also seen kind of social aspects of religion that I was kind of forced into in ways that were not, nothing like super, like, I don't have like scary, like super weird stories. I have like socially awkward stories about religion. Hmm. Um, And so I've got this sort of kind of relationship to religion that has always sort of made me kind of want to understand like why, how it ticks and like what, how, how people themselves sort of imagine their relationship to it. Like, what does it do for people? Um, because that's always been something. Because, like, I think my parents kind of wanted it to do something, even without a sort of strong propositional base behind it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that sounds very familiar, even though uh, I was I was coming along before you. Uh, very familiar. Yeah. It, the, the thing is, in a smaller community, in smaller towns yeah. and so forth, that uh, the best way to uh, integrate yourself into the community totally. is to. Uh, Got to be in the church. Uh, and they're and they're usually Protestant churches in the areas that where yeah. we were uh, growing sure. up, not not Catholic. Uh, and I think that's probably uh, I'm with you there. That there's a, there's a sort of fascination in the sense that I was supposed to be learning all of this stuff along the way, that uh, eventually I felt that I rejected, and sure. then. Uh, and then uh, uh, it was uh, it's the twelfth night thing. Uh, I had the Bible thrust upon me uh, sure, sure. by my colleagues here because I'm in Japan and uh, you know I'm not surrounded by Christians at all. And right. you know you. Um, you teach Shakespeare. You're stuff. the one
2: who's supposed to be able to teach. The, you're the guy who's supposed to be able to know this stuff. Yeah, right? you're, you're um, English
0: in yeah. the G- James Bible, King James Bible. You can do that, right? And I go, well, I yeah. suppose so. Yeah, but I'm, uh, you're, right. you're, from the, you're from the American South. That means you're a Christian and you're religious. So you yeah, yeah, yeah. Walking into this Bible class and I was a complete idiot. I had to go down and read the Bible. Sure. I had to read sure. the Bible and I'm going, What? What? This is wild. (laughs) Yeah, this is wild. Wild book. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and it's it's everybody. These polite women who would come from their little—I don't know what they were doing—the tea ceremony or something. But they would sit in my night class. I taught one at night also. When they're kimono and there's just wonderful polite women. And I'm going through week after week and it's just death destruction but like in the
2: book of judges for all time and you're oh like, my what
0: goodness is and, yeah. and, and they're just getting they're just wilting you know right in front of me and so well, where's the where's the part where we get to live forever and all the happy stuff you know And he goes, well even that so we we got a, old testament's really long guys it's really yeah. long yeah and you know how stood to uh, an example of how stupid i was i put one testament in one term yep. and one of testament we are, yeah, was, idiotic, I've been there before, man. It's yeah. idiotic. Uh, by the way, I'm doing uh, Leviticus today, and I oh, nice. finally figured out a way to get through Leviticus. Uh, I, I have a joke with my students that said, you know, the Bible just doesn't have a lot of video. You know, Shakespeare, I can break off. Yeah, and, sure. you know, they're doing, they're great in English, but they're, it's still second language. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's hard so work. First language you wear down over a period, so we break yes, it off. Yes, you do. And, uh, and do it that way, but there's no video. <laughs> they weren't uh filming anything um uh, there with the bible you know I, I i it's certainly not like leviticus line by line no not leviticus no or the best you can kind of get is charlton heston or something right exactly which, right which to me is just hilarious like the uh the vegas the vegas uh mm-hmm. show that they have when mm-hmm. uh, moses comes down from oh it's wonderful stuff but the uh Uh, The thing is, so I I, uh, say, listen, I worry year after year about actually boring someone. We talk about being bored to death. Sure, sure. That's a sort of uh, idiom that they learn and they laugh about us. And I'm worried that I'm going to bore one of you to death one day. At the end of class, one student's not moving. Right. I said, Leviticus today is the one where you could easily get bored to death. The endurance challenge, right? I found a way to get through it pretty quickly and just say, listen, got to have rules. If you're living out in the desert, you have to have rules. And these are a bunch of rules and let's move on to uh, something else. So, well,
2: and you can sort of sell it in terms of the sequel. Like when I had to, you know, when I've taught parts of Leviticus, it's like, like, there's got to be something that gets superseded here, man. Like, you know, or at least for the Christians, you know, I mean, there, I mean, but it is something that the new Testament is very remarkable. um, When you realize like it gets rid of all this, it gets rid of a lot of that. And it's, I mean, it is something that's, that it, it is kind of fascinating i think for me when when this sort of supersessionism of like christianity is that it's like wow like the book of leviticus gets really short in terms of what you actually have to pay attention to all of a sudden and so i mean it is this i think it's you can, i mean the joke i made is sort of like yours which is that like hey like the new testament gets you out of leviticus like what a gift i mean it sort of saves you from like large portions it is
0: it. it is a, it, it does it brings salvation in another way yeah. well uh, what I want to do now is uh, close the recording yeah, sure. with the uh, I'm heartfelt thanks from me and from a lot of people you haven't met yet, but I see Japan in your future. And, I'd love to come. Yeah, yeah You guys I'm have sure. a lot of, got a lot really, of really, really books that I need to see. I have colleagues over here really, really in the Shakespeare Society, but also uh, over at KO too, they would be yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. interested in what you're doing. And uh, you, you may be in contact After, afterwards. We may, I may give you some uh, names. You may, you may already have, actually. But um, uh, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Please, okay. thank you.